This is DeFi by Stake Capital, the podcast making the most important issues in DeFi and Web3 easy to understand and accessible to all, from the mouth and personal experiences of its builders and protagonists. Today, we interview Darren Kamas, CEO at Ipor Labs. Darren, thanks for being with us today. Please tell us who you are and what's your uh, role in, uh, in crypto. Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, my name is Darren Kamas. I'm the co-founder and CEO of iPore Labs. Uh, I've been building in crypto for a very long time, since uh, 2011. Uh, we used to be the number two exchange, two empty gox back in the day. I've been building ever since. Uh, and I'm really excited to bring iPore to the market. We want it to be the base of the DeFi credit markets. Mm-hmm. What is iPore about? Uh, so iPOR, it's an interest rate derivative protocol that really has two parts. One is a benchmark rate, uh, similar to, let's say, the LIBOR or the SOFOR, but native to DeFi. Uh, so it's sourced directly from smart contracts. Uh, and other protocols can call to that to set their debt structures, their deal terms, or structure derivatives mm-hmm. on the interest rate. And actually, that's the other major part of the protocol, the interest rate derivatives. It's a peer-to-pool interest rate swap. Uh, the engine has done over $4 uh, billion in Notional over the last year, and we're actually just on the verge of launching the V2, which brings the stake rate swap to the market. So you can trade, uh, for example, the Lido staked ETH rate. Let's get into the dance part of the, of the interview, and I will start with a provocative take. Web3 is dead. Change my mind. Web3 is dead. Well, I've been hearing that for a very long time, but it has different forms. Uh, crypto is dead. Blockchain is dead. Uh, I would say it's quite short-sighted. People are very bad in general at imagining the future. My parents' generation is a generation that grew up and they had a checkbook. I had a checkbook when I was a kid. Uh, at some point in their life, someone introduced this piece of plastic to pay for And they cannot see crypto as a viable means because they've already gone through multiple iterations. The funny thing is we still send uh, what we call wire transfers. That refers to the actual physical wire, uh, you know, they used to send money through Morse code, mm-hmm. uh, you know, along the train lines. So we're using very old technical terms. We're using very old technology. But, you know, we need a, a, actually a repiping of, of payments on the Internet. And then if we extend that to Web3, Uh, what we're really doing is decentralizing the value creation and the value capture. But it, re- it involves a lot of repiping, and it also involves disrupting a lot of, a lot of very massive, very powerful players. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any tips to survive the bear market? Tips for surviving the bear market. Uh, pull yourself away from charts. Uh, take a long-term view. The industry has a very big tendency psychologically to go in cycles with the market, but a, markets have cycles, right? Been through many of them, highs and lows. So we look at last cycles, major players have all collapsed and Bitcoin is at 27K. I don't understand why everyone is so depressed and bearish. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're saying that, you know, Web3 is dead, crypto is dead, we should be at zero. So I, I really don't understand, you know, why people think that this is so apocalyptic. Uh, I understand, but it should be much worse. And that should tell you kind of the anti-fragility of the system. So if we're looking at all the naysayers who are not very good at envisioning the future, then you, know, you should probably just keep your head down, keep building, and 
really try to give the magical experience of giving them the same kind of Web 2 experience they have on Web 3, focus on user experience, uh, you know, focus on building products that people are looking for. But, you know, a lot of people say a lot of things and then they'll be using your products in the future. So then just keep building. Yeah, you have kind of anticipated it. Anti-fragility. Failing is gold. Give us an, your example, an example of how failing in Web3 can benefit the wider ecosystem. Yeah, failing in Web3 and failing in general, I think is good because it means that you tried. Um, so I've built in crypto across Latin America, across Asia, and now in Europe. Uh, Europe has a much more nuanced uh, view of failing. Uh, and, and it's very difficult as a builder, but it, again, failing means that you've tried. So, you know, when you're trying to build something that may have never existed before, or you're trying to basically get people to switch rails um, from Web 2 to Web 3, when you're trying to change, a, a, you know, like the value creation cycle, or you're trying to disrupt an industry, there's a good chance you're going to fail because it's very difficult. It's harder for people to conceptualize before it's widespread. Uh, but the big thing about, about failing, about trying, about doing well is you have a really strong process. And I, and I find that a lot of people that I talk to that have this kind of mentality, they really haven't taken the risks. They've had a very kind of, uh, they, they've had a life where they've always worked for someone else. Uh, they get a stable income. Uh, that doesn't necessarily push you to learn as an individual. The learning process that you have, even if you failed, is much stronger than someone who can maybe spend their whole life doing the same thing. So, you know, I would discount when people say, uh, well, you know, when people are looking at either your failure or your success, you have to be uh, really confident about the process that you've gone Absolutely. through. And even if you fail, I'm guessing that you learned a lot along the way. You mentioned that Europe, Europeans have a different take on failure. How different? You mean that they're less embracing failure? Like there's more stigma maybe in the European cu culture about failure than uh, in, the, in the American culture or uh, Asian culture? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in, uh, in both US and in, uh, in Asia, talking more East Asia, you can say it's maybe more fast and loose in Asia. In, in uh, you know, if you go to SF, there's kind of a cult around failure. So, you know, the VCs will ask me, tell, you, tell me when you failed. Uh, I think it's a kind of a very different approach in Europe, but Europe is, uh, it's also kind of a different mentality. You know, I think European VCs, when you're pitching them, you know, you want to raise a, you know, a, a million dollar pre-A and they say, okay, uh, make sure that you're making two million in revenue. And I said, well, why would I need the money, right? So it's a very kind of different approach, but it's also a very kind of, uh, de-risked approach, mm -hmm. right? Where entrepreneurship is about risk. So, uh, I mean, in Europe, even if you think from a lifestyle, from a cultural, it's less volatility. You know, you may make less than you do in some markets. You may make more in some markets, but it's very, you know, people get rich or get poor much slower than in the U.S. where you're going to have this extreme yes. volatility yes. where you can, uh, you know, be living, uh, you know, in a mansion one day and on the streets Good the thing. other day. So it, it's just a different dynamic. Still on failures, what's your favorite Black Swan event and why? My favorite Black Swan event? Well, there's, there's a bunch. I mean, every, uh, every let's call them a, a, a Bitcoin cycle because it's really led by this kind of four-year halvening cycle. 
there's a major collapse, you know. So we were the number two exchange to Gox in 2011. You know, you had the big Gox kind of blow up in 2014. That was a, that was a very interesting one. But uh, like if we take something like much closer to us, you know, the Black Swan events were the collapse first of Terra and then kind of everything successively, uh, you know, the major lenders. My favorite thing that came out of all of that was actually Celsius, uh, which has opaque books, which had mismanagement, again, maybe too fast and loose internally, but it really gave the case for DeFi. So, you, you know, you have all this political pressure, regulatory pressure against crypto. In Celsius, this opaque book, this massive failure, the DeFi community is looking at the Ave position. It's watching them pay that back to get that capital because the smart contracts can't be negotiated with. So that is my kind of favorite moment in this last black swan event. And actually we embraced that. So for example, uh, on the iPort interface, we have something which is called the asset management screener, mm -hmm. or it's basically like a, you're an asset liability UI or interface just built on the blockchain itself. So it shows, you know, when you put capital into the iPOR protocol, it's going through other protocols. So it's, for example, being lent out in Aave or in Compound or in, uh, in, in the DAI pools actually to the MakerDAO SDAI module. Mm -hmm. So you can actually monitor your risks, but it's not, for example, iPOR Labs that's doing this. It's actually just an interface of what's happening in the on-chain smart contracts. So, you know, in Black Swan events, you also get things that you can really embrace, which is like the transparency of DeFi. Uh, and I think that's really cool. Uh, make your own Black Swan prediction. So the, the Black Swan prediction that I think maybe the, like the hardcore Bitcoiners are, are, are going for is kind of a collapse of everything and then everything has to move into hard assets. But I think that it won't happen so fast. I think that you have, uh, I mean, it would basically be a collapse of, of the US dollar, right? Mm -hmm. But in my view, it's very unlikely to happen at a very rapid pace. I think mm. we'll have kind of this, like if we look at what's happening with uh, the Japan and the yen, you know, it's more of like a uh, you know, multi-year slow process of uh, kind of fading into the abyss. But the black swan event would be the collapse of the US dollar. Uh, and at this point of US-backed stable coins, I guess, Tether or... Yeah, it could be, could yeah. be. Interesting. AI. AI tools are building tools for you or more of a killer tools for the blockchain and why? Yeah, so AI is, is both killer and it's an assistance. But, you know, if you look at the, the development of different tools, like, for example, uh, I was reading a, you know, it's kind of a side note uh, about Gen, Gen Z and the ability to access knowledge. Like Gen Z is no longer keeping knowledge essentially in their information archive they have rapid access uh you know on google and uh, you know you have access to any information but you don't have deep knowledge right mm -hmm. uh if you're using ai you can get access to a lot of information but you may not have the formation of why something is right or wrong mm -hmm. so for example uh you know our devs are using ai as an assistance uh you know but they've also had you know 5 10 15 years in enterprise software yeah. so they have a base so i see ai as a tool uh, but it can't replace everything because, uh, you know, if you don't have the formation, if you don't understand why, uh, you know, AI is also pulling from what can be a flawed data set. So I think it's very, it's, it's very useful, 
you know, we also went from a, a, a position where AI really sucked to watching chat GPT and saying, oh, so this is, this got very good, very quick. And then, you know, started coming up with maybe some of the more scary scenarios. So, uh, but I think it's also going to lead to a, a big differentiation of, you know, who builds AI and then the vast majority of, uh, of humanity will be just consumers. So this is also going to create a very big division in society, even if you think on the earning side. Mm -hmm. Which kind of leads me to reverse the question. Can the blockchain be a boosting tool or a warranty tool for AI and how? I think it can in some ways, but to be honest, my knowledge in AI is not so deep. Uh, but for example, uh, You know, if we look at like, uh, you know, some of the DeFi, uh, sorry, DeSci projects and things like this, you have a lot of uh, projects that were in, in 2017 uh, that were using like, uh, you know, decentralized uh, databases or knowledge that you can pay for data sets, right? Like monetizing data sets. And then you also have the interesting like uh, decentralized computing. You had a lot of miners that had graphics cards, you know, and when uh, a lot of the proof of work moves to ASICs, the graphic cards become uh, kind of a, a perfect tool for actually, um, you know, running the AI models. So mm -hmm. you see this kind of really cool parallel or, or infrastructure inside of crypto, uh, you know, running the, running the data sets on these uh, kind of massive, uh, uh, you know, graphics cards processors. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, beyond that, I don't have such a deep, deep uh, understanding. So. Yeah, no worries. Let's move back to DeFi. Give us a financial advice without including your project. Financial advice for DeFi is do your own research. Uh, you know, it takes time and brain power and also leverage other people's research and create kind of uh, good networks or get into good networks so that you understand what you're doing. You know, if you're starting out, don't take lots of risks like ir irrational smart contract risks or or going into any like, or any very obvious shit coins. But I mean, take some risks on some uh, projects that are being very innovative. You know, one, one great example is like uh, Euler. You know, Euler, mm -hmm. you know, they had the exploit, but it's one of the best DeFi teams in the entire industry, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, take some, uh, take some shots, but then, you know, when you are better established, make sure that you have good portfolio management. Uh, you don't want to put all of your portfolio at risk into something risky. You know, at that point, it's more about accumulation, right? So make sure that you're trying to, pairing a good portion of your portfolio down to uh, kind of lower risk, uh, you know, in terms of uh, technological risk. I'm talking about protocols that have been out longer, you know, that, you know, longevity is kind of a proxy to security in DeFi. Mm -hmm. You can still, uh, you know, go for some uh, uh, higher risk, higher return options, but You need to change the way that you think about portfolio management as uh, essentially your bankroll changes. Good take. Um, we get towards the end of the interview. If you could travel back in the past, would you change anything of your journey into crypto and what? I would change a lot of things and I wouldn't. People look at people that have been in crypto for a long time and say, oh, you got lucky or you had this or that. And the ones that are, let's say, that have done the best kind of financially are those that were already secure and they could basically take a bet without having to uh, change their way of life, right? Mm -hmm. If you're always on the entrepreneur side, 
you know, it's it's a bit different, right? You you take risks with your time. You take risks with uh, opportunity costs. And so, for example, I sold a, you know, I bought my first Bitcoin at eighteen dollars uh, when we were running the exchange. I sold it at six, uh, and this was in the uh, kind of first uh, uh, the first wave, uh, 2011, 2012. Uh, and I sold it because you know we worked kind of every day with Gox, uh, and I knew that I knew that they had problems. It was the right thing, but it was uh, two years too early, right? Uh, and I mean, even if I'd uh, if I'd kept those coins there, you know, we'd still be waiting for them. But I had all the reasons because I needed the money to do some other things, right? Uh, I was uh, was building uh, and helping, uh, you know, my business partner on a consulting business. But you know, if you look at that kind of trajectory, you always make different choices for different reasons. Your your uh, your position is always changing. Uh, go back. What I would do is I would go back and I would check all of these points and all of these decisions, understand why. But what's more important is checking your rationale. And if you made mm. it for for irrational reasons, then yes, this is something that you need to change. Please name someone we should interview next and why. Uh, you guys should definitely interview Dimitar Dinov. He's my co-founder. He's a tokenomics gigabrain. So uh, we align on a lot of things. We cover different parts of our own protocol. But if you want to get deep into the tokenomics side, he's definitely a person that is really great to nerd out with. Nice. We will. Noted. Okay, Darren, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Do you have any final remarks or highlights to leave us with about IPOR or about the ecosystem in general that you're looking forward to? I'm looking for, uh, forward to a really maturation in the DeFi ecosystem. Be more proactive about risk management. Uh, IPOR at its core is a risk management protocol. Interest rate derivatives are to manage your, your, uh, you know, your interest rate risk on your credit portfolio inside of DeFi, right? So I would like to see more people get very involved and very active in risk management and, uh, less formal, less greed-driven, and, you know, really be more responsible actors. So IPOR v2 is essentially uh, kind of this core infrastructure for, for the DeFi credit markets. You know, it's, it's the base of structured products. Uh, you know, you can trade the ETH staking rate. You can trade, uh, you know, the money market rates. And this is a base for kind of structured products. So uh, on top of the V2 infrastructure, you know, you can see different products built that actually are able to arbitrage the TradFi and DeFi yields, where you can, uh, you know, e either borrow against your RWA portfolio and get access to DeFi yield or go the other way, depending on which market's leading. But the important thing there is to, you know, use, uh, use risk management tools, try to... Uh, increase your portfolio at a rate that is responsible and rational because you know when you go for the moon oftentimes you know it can end up in a crater so <laughs> i would like to see the idea of risk management be more talked about proactively not only on the financial side also on the you know personal security opsec side uh on the uh you know assessing DeFi risk side so I want people to talk about risk more in, in, in light of managing risks. Yeah, also be more responsible also on the information side, like sharing the right information at the right time and not making, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Uh, you know, one of the issues and one of the reasons that uh, the industry as a whole has such a big regulatory spotlight on its back is because we're really bad at self-regulating. 
I mean, this, you know, when you have uh, a lot of actors that are really trying to push, uh, you know, a very like open, a very transparent system, you also have a lot of kind of shitheads who are breaking the rules and screwing people over. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason that this industry gets such a bad name. But there's a lot of people that are trying to build a much better kind of rails for a financial system, much more transparent, rules based. And so this is I, I, I want to see people talk about risk, but also self-regulation where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're really kind of checking ourselves as an industry, because if you don't, then you see the external pressures come in. Thank you very much. <laughs>